love, peace, and joy. The idea is that in these uh, four things, the, the, these four things represent the crucial longings and needs of humanity that find their fulfillment in the advent of the Messiah. Meaning, he came to the world that the world might receive what the world needs most. And those four are hope, love, peace, and joy. But what's interesting about these four themes of Advent is that if you actually stop to consider them, uh, I wonder if you actually believe that joy should make that list. We certainly see that hope, love, and peace are essential for our world. But do we view happiness that way? That is to say, we, we know something like love is absolutely vital, essential to all of us. Everyone in this room cannot survive without love. But I don't think we give our happiness such preeminence. I think we view joy as a nice accessory to life, something that's certainly important for us to enjoy, but it's not critically important to our very souls. But I will tell you who knows how central joy is to the human heart. Every parent in this room, whether a parent can articulate it or not, instinctively, a parent knows the massive significance of joy. There are no links that we would go to to show our children love. But you know what? There are no links that we will not go to to give our children joy as well. Let me give you an example. I'm going to tell you about um, a Cunningham Disney vacation we took. Parents know, if you're a good parent, you know, the Disney requires a high level of sophisticated strategizing. One does not just simply show up at Disney World. So the plotting literally begins months in advance. There, there are fast passes. Uh, there are meals to reserve. There, you, know, you, you map out every park and exactly what you're doing on and on and go with the scheming that's required. And then once you arrive, there is, of course, the implementation of the plan. And any Disney expert will tell you the most crucial part of the plan takes place at the opening of the park. They call it the rope drop, when um, the, the, the launching of a new day where Disney lies vulnerable, ready to be conquered again by parents and kids. And so what happens is everyone gathers together in just this huge mass of tourists waiting for that rope drop and then you run to your favorite rides or whatnot, and the rope drop is truly a survival of the fittest. And so here we are gathered with the masses waiting for the rope to drop, and we need to get to the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. That was the new cool ride that we wanted to get to that everybody's going to be running to, but we were out of position in the crowd, crucial mistake. Um, the, we need to be on the right side of the crowd, we were on the left side of the crowd, so we devised a, a plan. Um, I, I was going to push the double stroller and act as a lead blocker through the crowd. And my orders from Abby were very clear. Don't look back. Just trust us. We are right behind you. We'll get there. And it was pure madness. At one point, the, uh, the tire of the stroller clipped the heel of a fellow tourists, and in a moment of weakness, I began to slow down to say I'm sorry and uh, check on them. Unacceptable, no room for Christian empathy at Disney. So I, I, start to, I start to slow down, 
and look back and I hear the voice of my sweet pastor's wife behind me yell, don't you dare, just keep moving. Why? Why all the effort? Why all the planning? Why all the money? Why all the madness? Why? One and only one reason, to make our children happy. That's it. There are no links. We will not go to give our children joy. And we are that way because we are made in the image of a God who is that way. A God who will stop at nothing to make the world happy again. No links, he will not go, even sending his own son to bring joy to the world. This is what is before us in our passage this morning, and I'm going to divide it two ways. We're going to look at the revelation of joy and the foundation of joy. The revelation comes as the shepherds are in the field at night. The angels appear to them. The glory shines around them. And then here is the revelation from on high in verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So heaven brings good news. You said under preaching here, you know good news is gospel. A global gospel for all the people. But let us not miss or take for granted the significance of the descriptor of the gospel. It is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The good news is joy to the world. Now think about that. When heaven announces the arrival of the Messiah, joy is the chosen description. It does not say good news of great love, though that's certainly true. It does not say good news of great hope, that's true. But it doesn't say good news of great great peace, though that's true, great Glory, great mercy. There are countless ways to announce the goodness of the gospel that has arrived and heaven chooses joy. That matters. What excites heaven the most about the arrival of Jesus is that it's going to make the world happy. And yes, I'm defining joy as happiness. There's a movement these days to define joy as something other than what it is, which is happiness. The emotion of feeling happy. That's the meaning of the word in Greek. That's the meaning of the word in English. That's the meaning in every language because that's the meaning of joy. But what is popular these days is to say happiness is this frivolous, trivial emotion that comes and goes with circumstances, and we shouldn't necessarily be concerned with that. But joy is this deep, unaffected conviction that cannot be moved or shaken. That's nonsense. That's a coping mechanism to deal with how fragile joy is in this fallen world. It's so hard to find and maintain that we are just going to give up and redefine it as something that it isn't. But what we see here is that God has not given up on joy. God has not given up on happiness, on the dream that the world will be happy again. Because that's what the world was made to be. Eden was a happy place. A perpetually happy place. But when it was violated by sin, there emerged these strange intruders. Emotions of sadness, despondency, pain, tears, doubt, fear. All these sensations which ought not to be, but now tend to be more prevalent than their counterpart, joy. 
And so the world is left starving, ravenous to recover joy. You see, that's the thing with joy. It, it remains a longing that cannot be dismissed or suppressed. Joy is to the soul what food is to the body. You cannot turn off that hunger. It's an inescapable longing that cannot be suppressed. And so what happened in the fall was not the end of our longing for joy. It was, as Augustine says, a disordering of that longing. We place our need for joy upon things which cannot yield the joy we so desperately need. This is the essence of idolatry. You've heard idolatry defined as worshiping something that is not worthy of your worship. And this is true. We, we break the first commandment. We place other gods before the one true living God. And we worship something that is not worthy of worship. But here's the question. When you worship something, when you make something your idol, what are you asking of it? You are asking it to satisfy the longings of your soul. And one of those central longings is to make you happy. You are asking your idol to make you happy. Things like money, career, family, sex, power, beauty, achievement, on and on. I could go with the idols of our culture. At the end of the day, when it's all said and done, you are asking these things to make you happy. And here's the thing. They can for a moment. A, a fleeting moment. These are, these are actually good things that are worthy of your enjoyment, just not your ultimate enjoyment. So what they do is they yield what they can. They yield a fleeting joy, but never yield what you need, ultimate joy. And so we are, we idolaters are left in the ruins of our idolatry with the words of Solomon echoing in our souls. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The 1960s in our culture's history was known as the decade of indulgence. Birth, both the sexual and drug revolutions. And of course, this also is when rock and roll went mainstream as the musical expression of that indulgence. Sex, drugs, rock and roll. And the Rolling Stones released a song that would be labeled the theme song of the 60s by the magazine with the same name, Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones magazine labeled a song by the Rolling Stones as the theme song of the 60s, a song that Mick Jagger himself said captured the spirit of indulgence we were all experiencing. Well, I'd like to read for you the lyrics of that song that captured the spirit of indulgence, and it won't take a genius to see the irony. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no satisfaction. No satisfaction, no satisfaction, no satisfaction. The theme of indulgence. Is there any hope? If King Solomon and Mick Jagger can't find joy, is there any hope for normal folks like us? Are we to just accept the cruel reality of a joyless destiny? Heaven bursts forth through the boundaries of this miserable world to answer our question with good news of great joy for all the people. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. We've seen the revelation of joy. Let's turn now to the foundation of joy. Verse 11. For, that for indicates 
that this is the reason, this is the great joy, the foundation of the revelation of good news of great joy to the world. That is to say, this is what's going to make the world happy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. This birth, this event, this real circumstance is the source of joy. Now, why am I saying it like this? Because another misconception we tend to have about joy is that it isn't circumstantial. You will hear well-intended people speak of Christian joy as something that is impervious to any and all circumstances. Happiness comes and goes based on circumstances, but joy is there no matter the circumstance. That's wrong. Of course joy is dependent upon our circumstances. That's precisely the problem with joy, right? It's so fragile, coming and going based upon changing circumstances of life, and you won't find the Bible trying to argue otherwise. Instead, what the Bible is announcing here is the introduction of a new circumstance that will transcend any and all other circumstances. In other words, this announcement from on high of joy to the world is not dismissive of all the bad news that fills this world. It's just that it has the audacity to view this good news of great joy to be far superior to any and all bad news of great sorrow. Joy is circumstantial, but this is a joyful circumstance that overcomes and overwhelms any and all mournful circumstances. Simply put, because this happens, we have a reason to be happy no matter what happens. Okay, so why aren't we happy? This sounds great in theory, but this room is filled with those who have accepted this good news of great joy, and yet our lives are plagued with despondency, sadness, sorrow, anxiety. What gives? I want to suggest that perhaps we have forgotten just how good this news truly is. Isn't it fascinating the command to behold in our passage? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Behold, observe, consider, meditate, contemplate, internalize, apply. This is what it means to behold. I wonder if the problem is not the truth of this good news of great joy, but rather our failure to behold. So let's behold for a moment, shall we? That's the command of the verse. If we're going to obey this verse, then we have to behold. So let's obey. Behold, brothers and sisters, a Savior has been born to you. That didn't have to happen. In fact, it should not have happened. And that would have been the worst news of all. I don't in any way mean to minimize the difficulties in this room. I only mean to tell you that nothing compares to the dreadful thought of no Savior has been born to you. To leave us helpless and hopeless in our sinfulness, to hand us over to the hell of our own choosing, to deliver us over to the damnation of holy justice, to demand that we alone stand before the righteous heat of Mount Sinai's flames, to abandon us with no Savior in this eternally horrendous thought. You got yourself into this mess. You saved yourself out of this mess. 
Nothing could be more horrifying. Nothing. Go ahead. Name your worst circumstance. Name your greatest fear in life. Terminal diagnosis. Terminal diagnosis of a child. Wayward child. Never finding a spouse, living alone, never able to conceive and have children of your own, financial ruin, public shame. Go ahead. I dare you to name where your mind fears to go and then compare that to the prospects of no Savior has been born to you. We just take it for granted. But nothing could be worse than a world without Christmas. But behold, I bring you good news of great joy. A Savior has been born to you. A Savior has saved you. And that good news of great joy transcends any bad news of great sorrow. And so, yes, brothers and sisters, you ought to be happy. And if you're not, then behold the good news of great joy again. And again, and again, behold it until it breaks through, disperses the gloomy clouds of night, and puts a gospel smile on your face. And that smile of great joy is what Jesus came for. Do you know what it cost him to make you happy? His misery. Man of sorrows is his name. His birth is great joy for us, but great sorrow for him. Joy to the world, the man of sorrows has come. Jesus laid aside his eternal happiness to bear the destiny of our eternal sorrow. On the last night of his life, this is what he said. My soul is overwhelmed with what? With sorrow as it should be. Because the greatest moment of misery the world has ever known was staring him down. And yet, he embraces the misery so that you can be happy. So for Christ's sake, literally, for Christ's sake, be happy. I'm not trying to be trivial here. There are times for lament. Some of you may be there right now. Lament is a good and appropriate thing. It's all over the scriptures. But attending to our Christian lament is a peculiar joy even in the lament. The Savior who says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, we are also told, endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Even in Calvary's sorrow, Jesus was upheld by joy. And what was that joy that was before him? Your joy. That his misery was going to make you eternally happy. So again, I say, for Christ's sake, be happy. The greatest way to honor this good news of great joy is to enjoy the good news of great joy. Or to state it negatively. The greatest way to dishonor the great lengths your Savior went for your joy is not to be joyful. You want to know what ruins a Disney vacation? It's not the money, it's not the crowds, it's not the lines, it's not the Florida miserable heat. It's none of this. It's not any of the great links it requires to pull it off. It's when after you go to such great links, your kids don't enjoy it. Murmuring, complaining, whining, ungrateful, thankless response to your great efforts to make them happy. It's not only infuriating, truth be told, it's heartbreaking. But a smile, a laugh, that mesmerizing glee when they see in person their favorite characters, the 
thrilling scream on their favorite ride, that joyful hug from your kids and genuine thank you, your children in the thralls of happiness, enjoying the great lengths you went to make them happy. That is all the parent wants. So here's my challenge for us as we enter into Advent, Christmas season. Give Jesus what he wants. You can't repay him. He doesn't expect you or want you to. You can't add to this gift and make it better than it is. He doesn't expect you or want you to. But you can enjoy it, which is all he expects and wants of you. So for once, would you just accept that it's true and enjoy it? Christian, a Savior has been born to you. You really are forgiven. You really are free. You really are saved. You really are going to heaven when you die. You really are going to be raised from the dead into the new heavens and new earth to enjoy an eternal destiny of joy and pleasure forevermore. A Savior really has been born to you. A Savior really has died for you. A Savior really is risen and shall come again for you. The good news of great joy really is true for you. So just give Him what He wants and enjoy it. Let me pray.